Well, it's January 2023, the year of our Lord 2023. Sounds like science fiction almost, doesn't it? It's going to be a good year, though. It's going to be a fantastic year together. How are you doing today? All right, I heard you worshiping. That's awesome. Laura and I want to talk to you about some things today that they're kind of complicated, so you're going to have to kind of really tune in and listen and really get this, but it's some of the secrets that in the last few years have totally transformed us and maybe some things that you haven't ever heard before. We started last weekend uh, talking about our relationships, about those marriages and the, the closest relationships to us. And one of the main things that you can do, the best thing you can do for your relationship is simply to show up. You have to be there. You have to be engaged and, and purposeful in your relationship. If you missed that message last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. It'll give you a lot of foundation for what we're talking about today. And it sounds so simple, but most of us have a habit of falling out of it. We don't show up for those relationships, but that's the essential for us if we're going to tighten the knot in those marriages. Today, we want to build on that foundation and talk about what it means to grow up. Now, I've heard grow up quite a bit in my marriage because I have severe ADHD, and I found out just a few years ago that that puts you like a decade back in your emotional maturity. Explained so I a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I got married at 22, so she married a 12-year-old, you know? So that kind of, uh, she said grow up a few times there early. But what does it mean to grow up? I think it changes everything for us when we realize over 90% of the arguments that we have with our spouse, they're not about our spouse. They're not about right now. In fact, if we realize that 90% of our fighting is not with our spouse, but we're fighting with traumatized, fragmented parts of ourselves from childhood trauma, or we're fighting this blueprint of how we learned to love and attach to those primary caregivers in our childhood. And a lot of those things are triggering all the way back. We just have to take responsibility for our part in the relationship. I remember sitting down with a guy at Starbucks and uh, he said, well, Mark, my second marriage is ending. And you know what? She has just turned into a real witch. He didn't use the word witch, but it rhymed with witch. So I'm going to say witch today. Um, and uh, he, he said, it's so strange because my first wife turned into a witch, you know? And, and he said, they both seem so loving, so normal. So, I mean, just good women. And I, you know, I married him and like two years later, they're witches. And then he just stopped for a minute over his latte, you know, and said, I just realized I have the amazing ability to turn perfectly normal, amazing women into witches. And I said, bingo, guy. I think you're starting to get it now. You know, I think that you take responsibility for yourself. We can begin to see some movement take place. But the latest neuroscience, amazingly, or not so amazingly, really, agrees with Scripture, 2,000 years old. Imagine that. Scientists tell us that neurons that fire together, wire together. And so we make these pathways and we learn them early. And when you're a child, 
it takes, it's usually you're using the right side of your brain up to about age six. So most of it's over here on the right side uh, of the brain. And we get these pathways and they get really strong. You add family dysfunction to that. And this can make what psychologists call an insecure attachment or what the Bible uh, would, would call a childish thing or a childish way or a hurtful way or hurtful part. Add a little bit of trauma to that. And for some of you, a lot of trauma. And you get what the Bible might call a soul fragment. But the good news is that our brain is malleable. It's changeable. Scientists didn't used to believe that. But scripture has always said that. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we've seen that, you know, that what God wants to do is even change the way that we think. But what we find as we change our ways of thinking, it actually changes the physical brain inside of our head. It, be, it looks different if you looked at it, you know, on an MRI or something after sustained practice of new habits and new habits form. I think that's good news for all of us, right? That we can change, that things can be different. We can establish new habits. You know, at Community of Faith, I said it earlier that we believe prayer is the work. And before we dive into this today, I know it's going to be a lot of information. I want us to stop just for a minute and pray. And there's something specific that I want you to pray. I want you to listen to this verse in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. It says, investigate me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my troubled, anxious thoughts. See if there is any way, manner, or part in me that causes pain or comes from sorrow, and lead me in your way everlasting. That's our prayer this morning. Will you bow your heads just for a minute, and let's pray this prayer. God, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you love us. And today, we want what you want, God. We want to put away the childish things. We want to see that we can change and form new habits. God, we pray today that you would investigate me, that you would know my heart, that you would test me, that you would know my troubled and anxious thoughts. God, if you see anything in me, any way, any manner, any part that's causing pain to somebody else, especially to my spouse, or if you see any thing in me that comes from hurt and sorrow and trauma, would you lead me in your way everlasting? Because God, I know that's the very best thing for me and the very best thing for my marriage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right in the middle of the great love chapter, love is patient, love is kind. You just heard it on the video. Paul stops and he almost seems like he changes the subject. And for a long time, I didn't understand why he did that until the last few years when I began to discover uh, some of these new principles that have really transformed our marriage. And listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and following. Paul says this, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, for our knowledge is fragmentary and incomplete. But when that which is complete and perfect comes, that which is incomplete and partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. 
why is this here in the middle of talking about love and talking about marriage and talking about what that is? How we learned to survive and get our needs met and attach as children comes to the surface again and again when we experience a stressor. And you can just lean over to your spouse right now and say, you are a stressor, you know? So when we experience that, it puts us back into a different place. And then there's Jesus. Listen to what he says. This is talking about uh, one of the very first things he, he did. It says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He entered, as was his custom, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed him, a big scroll. And he opened the scroll up and he found the place where it was written. And I'm quoting this from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to deliver those who are crushed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to tell them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When we look at that word broken hearted or those two words together, shabar, broken, in the original Hebrew of Isaiah, it's talking about fragments, fragmented hearts. It means shattered into many fragments. He said, I came to heal those who have been shattered into fragments. Ministry to fractured parts was, was a basic element of Jesus' mission. He said, I came to heal it. And that word heal actually means to bind back together those who've been shattered into fragments. He wants to integrate us again as a whole. And to some degree, we all have been shattered into fragments. I can't think of anyone I don't know that doesn't have at least one little fragmented part. You hear it in our conversation. You know, maybe you say, yeah, I really want to go to that party, but part of me just wants to stay home and chill. I mean, you're recognizing that there are different parts of your personality. And if your childhood was particularly abusive or traumatic, then you have many fractured parts inside of you. And these parts need to be healed and bound back together. And that's what Jesus was talking about. I came to integrate your heart, to bind it back together so that you experience wholeness. It's that word shalom that the Bible talks about, a peace and wholeness. That's what God wants for us. And the interesting thing is that God made us this way. He designed us this way. So it's not something bad or unusual that you would have a fragmented part from the things that have happened in your life. God designed us that way with the ability to dissociate, to fragment. When we come upon circumstances as a child that are overwhelming or they're traumatic or they're hurtful, we wouldn't survive if we didn't have this ability to kind of shut that off over here and carry on with my life. God designed it to work that way. And the fact that you're here today listening to this message is proof of that, right? Because we've all had stuff in our lives. And yet here we were able to get up today and come like we're normal functioning people. It appears like you're a normal functioning person. <laughs> we have this part of us that it, it just carries on life, you know. 
And even you see it with children in severe abuse. They can still go to school. They can still function. But there's this whole other part that takes all of that pain. And now, I mean, Jesus is telling us, the Bible tells us, it's time to grow up. It's time to put away those childish things. When something happens as a kid and you are emotionally overwhelmed or wounded or traumatized, we start to to speak and act like little children when we get triggered. Do you see that in yourself? I know for Mark and I, if we're ever in an argument, almost every argument, at some point, all of a sudden it's like we're we're kids fighting with one another and you hear that, you know, well, I know I am, but what are you, you know, and, or, you know, I'm rubber and you're glue. What bounces off of me sticks to you. I hate it when she says that. (laughs) But it's, it comes from those fractured childish parts. And the Bible wants us to grow past that and integrate that into adulthood. Now, most of these uh, fragmented, these soul fragments, these fragmented parts They're located in the right side of the brain because that was what was developing as a child. And the the right side of the brain cannot process time. So these fragments, they're stuck at the same place as you were in that moment. Maybe you believed in God at that moment, or maybe you didn't believe in God. And maybe you're a strong believer now, but there's parts of you that'll come in and try to take over sometimes under stress that don't believe in God at all, it seems like, you know? And why am I acting like this? Why am I not trusting? What? And, and, and there's, there's things that come in and we have these really strong emotions like anger. But anger is a, a powerful emotion, but it usually masks what the real emotions are. So these soul fragments, they'll get stuck in time. They don't even know that you've grown up. So they're still trying to protect you. They're not your enemies. They're there to protect you the way that God designed you. They're not to be feared or hated or or resented. See, a lot of times if we think of ourselves not fractured, we just think, why am I so at war with myself? There's a part of me that wants this and a part of me that wants this. And, you know, and it's so interesting because, you know, in coaching and counseling and things, I, I mean, I'll be talking to people who have one part of themselves that's, that's talking about committing suicide and another part that's planning the family reunion for next summer. And, and it just, you're, even a lot of times the client can't understand what's going on, but it's because we have all of these different parts. We're not a whole. In this broken world, we've experienced so much trauma that we've fractured, and all of us have fractured at least once. So what you'll find is that the the pain for these parts is as fresh as when that trauma first happened. And a lot of these fragmented parts are incredibly tired. I remember talking to one woman, she was in her 50s, and she had been uh, sexually abused uh, by a family member when she was seven. But when she finally got in touch with that part, see, the what it is, scientists tell us, is like this, these, it's almost like a neuronic knot that's tied off that doesn't, it just seems like you can't really get to it. The memory is vague. The memory is hard to get to. You know something bad happened, but you can't really put it into place, you know? But the feelings that go with it, the emotional flashbacks that you have are really strong. And so they come in really really strong. And these are are stuck in time. So I remember this lady I was talking to in her fifties when she finally got in touch. And what psychologists have found is that it's easier to just imagine these 
fragmented parts of our soul, of our brain, if we imagine them almost as us at that age, because that's what it feels like. And so I can help people get in touch with that when, when they start to think of that. Because if you just said, I've got a neuronic knot in the right side of my brain, it's not very compelling, is it? You know, well, let's get surgery and get that out of there or something, you know? <laughs> that's not how it works. But if you say, that little seven-year-old, I, I, I can sense that now. I can sense this little seven-year-old that's been holding this pain all this time. And I remember her saying to me, that little seven-year-old, you know, it's, it's, it's indicating to me that it's so tired because it doesn't sleep. She never sleeps. It's not safe to sleep at night. And I'm thinking, oh, for 40 some odd years, she's been awake, alert. And every time that something triggered what was close to that trauma, even if it wasn't even very similar, but something that, that reminded that part of the brain of that, it would just trigger into these intense emotions. And so we have that. That's what we're fighting. That's what we're dealing with a lot of times. And what Jesus is wanting us to do is not hate those parts of ourselves. He wants you to love your fragments because he created you that way. They've done you a great service. They enabled you to survive, like Laura said. And like, I look at you and say, congratulations, you're a survivor. A lot of people who have had your growing up, they would have just curled up in a ball and died, but you didn't. You survived, and you've got this part of you that just keeps trucking along, but there's these other parts that are sabotaging you now because they're, they've got a childish aspect to them because now you're an adult and you're safe. And you can even begin to tell those parts, hey, I'm grown up now. I can keep you safe. I can watch over you. I'm going to get some new boundaries. I'm going to find some new ways of doing things. See, when I realized that I was dealing with a, a deep woundedness in some seriously fractured parts of myself, I realized that to, to find real healing, I wasn't going to be able to decide one day, well, just get over it. Just get over it. Or, or a little touch from the Lord on the surface, you know, wasn't going to be enough. I was going to need to open up long blocked off areas of my heart and allow him to work progressively in those places. So when trauma happens, fragments are created. One of their jobs is to keep you safe. So they hang out under the surface until a situation that resembles the original trauma presents itself. And when you're in a new situation that your fragment associates with the initial trauma, even if it's a scaled down version, those feelings, the original emotions attached to that original trauma will be present. The reason this happens is so that you'll go into fight or flight mode and come out in one piece, unlike maybe last time. So this protective mechanism helps you survive as a child, but then you grow up and you're no longer powerless, but you still are dealing as if you're that powerless child. And so it really wreaks havoc in any close relationship like marriage. Marriage brings this out almost more than anything else. I read recently that 80% of women have been betrayed sexually by someone they trust deeply by the time they're 18. Ladies, that alone will cause fragment. And 
Sometimes you wonder, why is I'm having so much trouble in my sexual life in marriage or whatever? There's a lot of things that can go into that. There's a lot of things that are, are going on. So those fragments impact our relationships, like Mark said. The other thing that has a big impact on our relationship is what we learned growing up in that family relationship determined our beliefs and our expectations about how to give and receive love. And so you learned a particular family system and your spouse learned another one. Most often, they don't go together well, but all of those things that we learn, they show up when we get in arguments with one another, when we have tension and stress in our relationship. The fights that you're having in that primary relationship really don't have anything to do with your spouse. They started way back when in your childhood. And, and Mark and I had very different lessons on well, love like for example, in our relationship. I'm the, I'm the pursuer, and, and I'm always trying to get close, you know, and and, and be close. My family was a little bit overly enmeshed, you a know, a little bit, a, a little bit. And, and, and so we have that. And then, you know, Laura's family is not that way at all. You know, so he would be pursuing me trying to connect. We're all trying to connect always. And I thought, what in the world is he doing? I'm fine on my own. I really didn't have any vocabulary to even express emotion or define emotion for me. And, and Mark was kind of gauging the temperature of our relationship. Always gauging. You know, yeah, she's like, trying, I feel like an experiment. Yeah. And, and it explained a lot of things going on in our early marriage. In fact, our marriage relationships really kind of just shine a spotlight on those attachment injuries that we may have received as children. If you didn't have that adult figure in your life that provided a healthy attachment to you, um, the good news is in your marriage relationship now, if you will work together, you can establish those healthy attachments. And if you don't, you see those things rise up and impact your relationship. So I'm pursuing Laura, and her theme is I'm a rock, I'm an island, you know, I don't need anybody do else. I can take care of it. And her theme song is Foreigners Cold as Ice, you know, back in the day. And, and so um, I'm going like, what is going on? And I used to tell her stuff like, I feel like I married a porcupine or something, you know, and it's, and I would just get mad. I mean, those yeah, things she responded never well to that. <laughs> but attachment theory really isn't that difficult to understand. It's simply put that probably what bothers you most about your spouse is related to some sort of painful or traumatic experience that they had growing up or something they learned or didn't learn in, in regards with love and how to give and receive that in their childhood. And you start doing these uh, dance steps, we call them, around one another. And it brings up an important question for your relationships, and I want you to hear this. We haven't, I mean, we have said it before, but I want you to hear it again. Can you recall being comforted as a child after a time of emotional distress? Because your answer to that question kind of helps you see if you had a healthy attachment or not. It helps you get some insight into to who you are now as an adult and who you were as a child. And I'm not talking about, you know, if you fell down and scraped your knee or maybe you were sick for a week, but I'm talking about a time when you were significantly upset as a child and nobody was there for you. Or maybe they even ridiculed you or made fun of you or told you that it wasn't important. And these are, I'm not talking about adult issues, but 
things to a child that would be important to them. Maybe a boyfriend broke up with you. Or oh, maybe, you're sad. It's just puppy love. <laughs> maybe you, your best friend moved away or you were disappointed because you didn't make the baseball team. Those are big deals to children. And when we as adults don't pay attention to that and recognize that this is a, a hugely important thing to this child and offer comfort and support and grace... When instead we give ridicule or we walk away and we don't listen, we tell them they're being a baby. I mean, they learn to not attach because it's not safe. And maybe it's major trauma that you experienced as a child. Maybe you um, experienced divorce and grew up in that. Or maybe you experienced the death of someone who was close to you. Or, or maybe you were traumatized either physically or sexually or emotionally. But it's during those first years of life that these patterns are established. And when we end up in a marriage relationship, I mean, you just end up confused and not understanding. You're needing comfort. You're needing to connect, but you really don't know how to do it. And there's a stark absence of that. And these memories trigger a lot of things for us. And when you see those arguments and, and not getting along, that's where it's coming from. Your parents, you know, just say, even if they were, Christians, and they would just say, well, just remember, all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I never did like that boy anyway, so I'm glad you broke up, you know? <laughs> and that's a great verse, and it's true, and it's important, but to offer comfort and compassion is another thing. Related to that question, here's another question. How was conflict handled in your family? That's, that's a huge question. Was there ever a time when you weren't getting along with your parents, when you just couldn't communicate? Was it uh, a normal thing in, in your family, a tension in the family? Did disagreements leave you feeling alone and disconnected from your parent or family? See, if you were fortunate enough to be part of a family that acknowledged problems and successfully resolved them, then you learned some things. You learned that you can repair because everybody makes mistakes. But if that parent came and said, I'm so sorry, or I'm really hearing you right now, I want to know what you're feeling and what's going on with you. Then you started to learn some soul words, Laura and I call it soul words, because most of us as adults, we don't have soul words. We don't know them. So even when your spouse says, what are you feeling? Feeling, you know, Am I feeling something right now? I mean, you're the one always talking about feelings, you know. Why are you, you don't even know what you're feeling because you're not, you haven't even got the words. And how can you have intimacy without people knowing what's going on inside of you? And most of the time, what's going on inside of you is not even what you're expressing. I have this huge fear of abandonment, but I'm expressing it as anger and that looks ugly to my spouse, and they're interpreting it as anger. I can never be good enough for you, but you're trying desperately to connect. And, and so we begin to, to see how all of these things can happen. Did you know that 75% of adults in a huge survey said they do not have a single memory of receiving comfort from a primary caregiver when they were children? And a lot of us that didn't get that, a lot of times we just, how was your childhood? Oh, I think I had a good childhood. I had a happy childhood. Really tell me some memories. I can't remember much of it, you know. 
And you, you, that's a big hint right there. If you have big blocks of memory that are gone, okay? Um, if your parents listened to you, touched you in love, helped you express what was going on in your soul, gave you those soul words, accepted your feelings, resolved problems well, you have a healthy view of relationship. But most of us were not fully known like that. And so we don't know how to fully give like that. What's going on inside of us? Are you taught to identify and express those feelings? See, the ability to console and bring relief to your spouse when he or she is upset and agitated is foundational to a close relationship. Intimacy, into me, see. But we don't know how to open up like that. And a lot of us don't even feel like it's safe to do that. I know for the first half of our married life, uh, we just weren't able to do that, you know? And I think it's the issue for 99% of the people that I talk to that are really struggling. As a couple, we've disconnected emotionally. We don't feel emotionally safe with each other. And almost every fight that we have really is a fight for connection. We just do it really, really, really badly. I want you to listen to Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says, the real motives come from deep within a person, as from deep waters, but a discerning person is able to draw them up and expose them. We're not trying to lay all the blame on your parents. That wouldn't be fair to them. But the truth is, we've all been impacted by those we grew up with, and it's impacting our lives today. And that's why we said you have to grow up. You have to let those things go to learn to work through them. Distressed partners may use different words, but like Mark said, they're always looking for connection. They always want to know, are you going to be there for me? Are, do I matter to you? Will you come to me when I call out to you? That's what we're looking for in a relationship. And, and one of our best uh, protective uh, mechanisms that we have is to, when we feel that that connection is broken, we suddenly cut it off because we're afraid of being injured again. That default option happens so quickly. I've read that one two hundredth of a second when we feel that danger of disconnection or that that the spouse is not there for you, you immediately shut down and turn off your emotions. Well, you're not going to be able to have a good, loving, close relationship that way. But you can learn to recognize when that's happening and choose to make a difference. It seems to be like a hardwired type panic in us, but it's really something that we can learn to change. Psychologists call these things triggers, and they're sensitivities that come from our temperament. They come from our background, for our attachment histories, from the negative experiences we've had in life, from the negative experiences we've had in relationships. But they always re reflect moments when a loved one is perceived as not responding to our need so how do we know when a, when a trigger, we're triggered or a raw spot has been triggered? There's a couple of ways to know. And for me, it was uh, kind of life-changing to learn and to be able to recognize it in myself and then to recognize it in Mark and say, oh, well, here we are, two little kids arguing again. But the first one is that you'll sense a sudden radical shift in the emotional tone of the conversation. Maybe you guys were just talking one minute ago and all of a sudden everything's changed and you don't even know what happened. I, um, I don't 
think that's ever happened to you, no, right? No, it's kind of <laughs> like ice and, you know, the room just ices over, you know? Well, I, like, I heard about a couple and he said that very thing, that he would be in the car talking to his wife, they're driving along and all of a sudden her whole expression changed and it was, he said, it's like ice on the inside of the window. What did I just do, you know? She was triggered. So when you see those type or you feel those type of experiences, you need to stop and recognize that one of the two of you has been triggered and to talk through that trigger before you try to continue with whatever else it was you were talking about because you're not going to get anywhere. And sometimes you point. just have to say, I'm triggered. I'm super triggered right now. I Give mean, me my time. emotions are off the scale and they should be at a three, but they're at an 11. So I need to figure that out. Give that's, me just a minute. That's the second way to recognize a trigger is if the perceived offense seems way out of proportion to what's actually going on. So like Mark said, if your uh, emotions just shoot off the chart and it's really not that big of a, a thing that's happened actually, that's a real um, clue that a trigger has been touched on. I, um, someone, a lady was telling me before, like they had planned a date night that night and she got caught up on the phone. And by the time she came downstairs, her husband had just gone ballistic. It's like, well, that you know, the five-minute delay at a date night really isn't that huge oh, it's important. Of a thing. I know for some of you it is. <laughs> but it was out of proportion to what had just happened, and that's how you know that a trigger has been touched on. Psychologist Dr. Caroline Leaf says this, strong emotions are invitations to explore internally, not excuses to misbehave externally. So it's these triggers that we need to learn to recognize and those um, child parts that begin to come out when we're in a triggered situation so we can work through that. And just real quickly, because we don't have a lot of time this morning to go into depth, let me tell you a couple of common um, conflict patterns that come out of those triggers. The most common that I see is what I would call protest and withdraw. One spouse is desperately trying to connect a lot of times it's the woman. In my case, it's me. You know, I mean, I always have all the woman characteristics, so I don't know. But we won't even go there. Uh, but, you know, here, here's a, 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 you're trying to connect and the other one, but you're doing it badly. Okay, you're trying to connect, but you're just, and maybe it's criticism or, or, or something else. And you're just trying to say, don't you care about me and about this and about, and the other one then hears it as criticism personal criticism and withdraws more into their shell. Psychologist John Gottman of the University of Washington, Seattle, he said that most couples who fall into this pattern early in marriage don't make it to their fifth anniversary. But there are others who are just, you know, strong-willed and they stay together, but they're miserably mired in it indefinitely. One partner reaches out but in a negative way, the other steps back and the pattern repeats and it just keeps moving that way. One is withdrawing into the shell. And this dance goes on forever because the emotions and the needs behind the dance are the most powerful on the planet. Attachment relationships are the only ties on earth that any response at all, even a negative one, is better than no response. So when we get no emotional response from a loved one, we're wired to protest. And it's all about trying to get a response. The couples have a difficult time recognizing this pattern. One partner is demanding, actively protesting the disconnection. The other is withdrawing, quietly 
protesting the implied criticism. And, and here we are in constant tension. And even therapists have misguidedly viewed this pattern as a, a power struggle and have, a, have attempted to resolve it by saying, let me give you some conflict resolution techniques. Or it's kind of like offering Kleenex as the cure for you know, COVID-19 or something. It ignores all the hot attachment issues that underlie that. The conflict or control, the issue from an attachment perspective is that emotional distance. I'm trying to close that gap. And it's no accident that one is stonewalling, which is what Dr. John Gottman uses as that lack of response that sparks off the rage and aggression. How do you stop this? If you're the one that's the protester, the demander, see the little child protecting itself in your spouse. He has no soul words. She has no soul words. She doesn't even know what you're asking, probably. She's never experienced that in her, in her growing up years. There wasn't that kind. She didn't even know what that means. Maybe your spouse is totally happy and you're just miserable and lonely and you've been trying to connect and it just keeps having the same thing happen. But express yourself softer, clearer, not negatively, not demandingly. You have to go deeper and it's vulnerable. I really long for connection with you. When you can stop the anger and the criticism and you can say, I'm just lonely. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to connect with you. You know, there's hardly a spouse in the world that looks at you and goes, well, I don't want to connect with you. But the other stuff that's coming out that's so ugly, they don't want to have any part of it. What if you're the withdrawer? See the little child. See the child in your spouse that's trying desperately to connect, and they're doing it poorly. They're doing it with criticism and negativity and nagging maybe. But if you see that they're desperately wanting to connect, you can change the feeling that you have. It's a need for support and attachment. And I think it's just, it's, it's important that we realize this. Let me just read you what, what one client said. The more he refuses to talk to me or dismisses my feelings, the angrier I get and the more I poke him. Does that sound familiar? Anything to get a response from him. And then her partner picks up. And the more I hear that angry tone in her voice, the more I just hear I can never, ever please her. I just get hopeless and more silent. And then that leads to this, this final little dance that we do called withdraw, withdraw. And that's when the pursuer finally gives up and stops. And a lot of times, things will get more pleasant in the house. There's not that constant tension, but there's nothing. And sometimes the one that's withdrawer, the withdrawer will finally realize, I think we're in worse shape than we were before, even though it feels better to me, you know? And they'll say, well, I'm willing to go get counseling. I'm willing to read the, a book. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to you know, listen to the pastor. But sometimes it's been so long and there's so much water under the bridge that it's, you know, that it's too late. We only have two ways of protecting ourselves, really, of holding on to connections. 
the first route is to avoid engagement, you know, in your house. Maybe it was safer to not, you know, to be seen and not heard or maybe not seen or heard, just kind of, you know, flit around the edges and stuff, or you knew you're going to be in trouble. The other way is to listen to our anxiety that's building up and fight for recognition and response. See, it goes all the way back to our fight or flight that God gave us to survive things. And we're doing several different things there, okay? So we become demanding, critical, or withdrawing and shutting down. Some of it reflects our natural temperament, but a lot of it is learned attachments and how to get along and how to survive and how to get our primary caregivers to pay attention to us. When the couple gets to this point, this is a difficult, difficult time, but it's not hopeless because it's never hopeless with God. So that's a lot of information. What do you do with that? What do you do with that this week? I want to give you a couple of things to do this week as you go home. The first one is simply to look at yourself. I think it's so easy when we are in these situations and we hear all this information and we're talking about relationships to, to at least for me, oh yeah, I see that in Mark. I see him do that. Here's what he needs to do. And we forget to look at ourselves. But I want you to look at yourself this week. What are those things that you need to work on? What are the things that God wants you to do? And work on yourself. I mean, he's wanting you to to deal with your own personal stuff. Maybe you struggle with addiction, or maybe you struggle with pornography or depression, or maybe you've had trauma in your life. And, And I'm not saying these things are terrible. I'm just saying it happens in the human condition. And God says, now it's time to grow up and work on these things. I want to encourage you to do that. We have recovery groups here at Community of Faith that meet on Wednesday nights for adults and for teenagers. Take advantage of that. We have a counseling center that's here for you. Take advantage of that. They're trained to help you deal with the stuff. You know, reaching out for help is not giving up. Like we said last week, it's, it's saying, I'm not giving up. I want help because I want to make this work. So get the help you need. You know, that verse we read from Psalm 139, it says, investigate me, God. Test me, God. Lead me in your everlasting way. So look at yourself this week. Ask God to show you the things that he wants you to work on. And that's the second thing, to simply pray. Pray, because God's going to show you what he wants you to do. He's going to show you the next step. He's going to bring those things up in your mind, and you'll say, I see it now. This is a childish way. This is a hurtful way. And now you can make choices to change those things. Ask God to show you, what are my triggers? What are those habit patterns that I'm in that are unhealthy? I promise you he'll show you. He wants you to know. He wants you to grow. He wants you to move forward. And simply ask for help. We'll have some of our prayer team down here as well if you want to pray for them today, even if you have a great relationship say, let's pray that, that God will keep it great, that we, we don't run into these things. have a big seminar coming up, too. We have a marriage conference coming up um, in February the 25th. It's an all-day Saturday affair, um, a great opportunity for you just to get a tune-up in your relationship. There'll be childcare, food provided. Um, sign up for that and come and be a part of that. And I think really the key to everything 
this week as well as the rest of your life is to simply walk filled with the Spirit. It changes everything. It changes everything in you and therefore changes everything that comes out of you. So you want to ask God to help you live filled in the Spirit this week. In fact, let's do that as we close. You can start your day out like this. This is how I do it, okay? And it's really simple. Just close your eyes with me. First, just say thank you, God, for something, something that he's done for you today or in this past week. Thank you for so many things, but we forget to be grateful. And then just say, God, here's what I love about you. That's called praise. So we start with thanks. We move to praise. This is what I love about you. I love how humble you are that you meet us here. I love that you never give up on me, whatever it is, whatever it might be. And then if you're a believer, if you've stepped into this journey full out with Jesus and said, I want you to be the Lord of my life, he says his Holy Spirit actually came to live in us to give us the power to do this. So I go to confession next. And and what I do is I just say, Holy Spirit, you live in me. Is there anything blocking our relationship right now? And then just let him bring it to your mind. Don't try to dredge it up. Don't try to think of anything you've done wrong for the last 20 years. Just let him bring, he'll bring a few things up at a time. And as you have those brought up, the Bible says, confess your sins. And he's faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. And that word confess, it just means to agree with. So you just say, you don't have to walk across broken glass on your hands and knees. You just say, Jesus, I agree with you. That was sin. That was wrong when I lost my temper, when I looked at that porn site, when I, you know, was angry and screamed those profanities at my kids. Whatever it might be, just let him bring that up to you and then just agree with him. And then if you're a believer, you say this, Holy Spirit, you live in me. I want you to fill me completely and let me walk fully filled with you, and you just overflow me. The Bible says you'll know you're filled with the Spirit because the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. But just with your eyes closed, just to kind of cement it all together, we have these ways that we learn to attach to our earliest caregivers. We have these traumas that came in and we have fragments of our soul that took all that trauma. And then we have other little parts that gather around that and try to protect it. Maybe it's a people-pleasing part or something like that. And then we have these other little parts that just say, you can't continue to feel this strong of a feeling. And so they're firefighter parts and you need to, Go over here and have an extra drink and drink and drink and drink. Or you need to go to this particular prescription drug or you need to go to a porn site and feel different. Get your dopamine going. Because they have no sense of consequences. Those are all childish parts. God wants to heal us from that. I know Laura and I knew nothing about that early, but being filled with the Spirit kept our marriage together. And so you can also say, Holy Spirit, show me when I'm triggered. Show me when my emotions are off the scale. 
Help me to see these parts of me. And then as you go to this conference that our counselors are putting together, they'll dig deep into some of this. You can get counseling here. You can work on that. We'll be doing stuff about this all through the year. So if you hang in there and you just be consistent and be here, you're going to find out more and more and more about how to live this. I know it was a lot of information. I'm just praying. Let me just pray for you right now, God. Just take this. And even though for some of us it's maybe overwhelming amount of new information, we sense the truth of it because it comes directly from you and the way that you made us. Psychology happened to stumble on to it lately, and that's a, a blessing. But I thank you, God, that it's been there in your word all this time. So I say, come, kingdom of God, upon our marriages. Be done, will of God, in all of these closest relationships. Let nothing stop the good plans that you have for us. Teach us, grow us, help us to take responsibility for ourselves as we step into all that you want us to be. And I'm asking, God, because I know that you want this, I'm asking that our marriages will be the sweetest things in our lives and that we'll show to the generations to come, our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and on, what it really looks like to have a love relationship filled with the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got people to pray for you. We're here for you. We love you, community of faith. Have a good week.